This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Tony Juniper. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are just, I suppose, saying goodbye to the sizzling summer of 2018, which itself followed on the beast from the east, chill and cold uh, weather pattern. And I just wonder, do you think, Tony, in the years to come, in 2018, it will be recognized as the year when everything changed, when we suddenly saw and accepted uh, what you know, we'd done to the planet was being returned in spades. It might well be, mightn't we? I, I think it's getting to the point now where you'd have to really stretch the imagination to claim that nothing's going on. So I think we have entered a, a new period. Mm -hmm. And actually, we're just a few weeks away now from the hurricane season beginning again in the Caribbean. It'll be interesting to see what happens see this what happens year then, yeah. with the sea surface temperatures even higher than they were last year. Well, that's uh, something to look forward to then. Hopefully not. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> anyway, what I'm looking forward to is seeing your presentation. So shall we crack shall on? Shall we please? crack on? Yes, why not, Al? Thank you Thank very you. much indeed. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to be back in Edinburgh and to have the opportunity to share a few reflections from this book, um, very recently published, called Rainforest Dispatches from Earth's Most Vital Front Lines. This is a book that um, took some time to write, and indeed, what I've tried to do here is to draw on quite a lot of personal experience going back quite a few years. That, would you believe, is me. This is um, just when I took on uh, my initial role running the Tropical Rainforest Campaign at Friends of the Earth back in 1990. And by then, I'd already spent a few years working on tropical birds, trying to stop them from extinction, and so beginning to understand some of what was going on. And then, after working at Friends of the Earth for 18 years, joined the Prince's Rainforest Project and saw the issues again from a different perspective there, and most recently have joined WWF, where the journey continues. So what I'm going to do today is, is try and summarize some of the main thinking that's in this book, really setting out something of the character of the tropical rainforest to tell you something about what's happening to them, uh, to say something about why we should worry about what's happening to them, and then to say something about what can be done and indeed is being done. I will illustrate the talk with a few photographs. Um, the really, really good ones are by a photographer called Thomas Marant, whose work is um, in the book, and some of the less good ones are mine. And I'm not necessary to label them because you'll see which is which right away. So the character of the tropical rainforests. Let's begin uh, with something of what these places are like. Well, as I point out in the book, there is a clue in the name. The tropical rainforests, and some of them in particular, are exceedingly wet. They have a great deal of moisture falling upon them, uh, upwards of a couple of metres per year, and even in Scotland you might think that is quite moist. And of course, these systems not only having a lot of rain falling upon them, but they're also pumping vast amounts of moisture into the atmosphere, and this is really an emerging field of atmospheric physics, is to understand the mechanisms whereby the forests are actually replenishing rain cloud and moisture in the atmosphere, and indeed transporting water over very great distances. The Amazon Basin Rainforest is the largest hydrological system on Earth, and above that forest every day, some 20 billion tonnes of water is expelled into the atmosphere by the trees, and that process is not only putting water into the air, 
it's actually driving atmospheric circulation at a planetary level. Because what's going on, and by a mechanism that now has only recently been understood called the biotic pump, the fact of putting water vapour into the atmosphere, which is a gas, when that gets to altitude and converts back to a liquid, it collapses. It goes from uh, being quite a voluminous material, collapsing inward, occupying much less atmosphere, thereby pulling the air underneath up into the sky. Any of you who've ever been on a long-haul flight crossing the equatorial rainforest will feel that in the turbulence as you go over uh, the forested area. This is the moisture uh, then uh, being converted back in, into droplets. And as it's doing that, it's pulling air up, but not only up, but also from the side, which is why the Amazon rainforest is drawing over itself moist air from the ocean. It's replenishing its own water supply by creating this massive updraft, which in itself is a way of moving moisture very long distances. And that process, the biotic pump process, is being driven by photosynthesis. Photosynthesis, obviously, is an interaction between gases in the atmosphere and plants, carbon dioxide being taken in, oxygen being expelled along with the water, but at the same time, of course, the whole thing being powered by sunshine, photosynthetic-driven pump of water and air, which is being um, every day driven by the equatorial sunshine which is passing directly overhead. A different character to the temperate forests we have in our latitude where we have this extreme of day length over the course of the year. On the equatorial regions, the day length is pretty much the same. Day in, day out with the sun going overhead, producing a lot of moisture, sorry, a lot of heat, driving moisture into the atmosphere but powering photosynthesis. The character of the forest is not only determined by moisture, the atmosphere and sunshine, but also topography. This is a picture of a tree in a lowland forest, an even canopy covering tens of thousands of square miles with emergent trees coming through the top, big trees like this one here the ones that happen to be targeted by the loggers for luxury timbers like mahogany. But this kind of forest is obviously covering large areas of central uh, South America, across large areas of Central Africa, and also um, across the islands of Asia and indeed the Asian mainland. In all of those areas, if you go up about 1,000 metres, between one and 2,000 metres, you start to see forest that looks more like this. This is a tree inside a cloud forest. This has got a different interaction with the atmosphere. These trees are harvesting moisture from the air. When a cloud collides with these kinds of forests, it meets a great plethora of surface area of lichens, of mosses, of ferns, of tree leaves. That tree, when I photographed it, it had its own stream running from the base of the tree, pulling so much moisture from the air that actually it was generating its own river flow, just the single tree. These forests are crucial for water security across many parts of the tropical realm where you've got trees growing between about 1,000 and 2,000 metres and even though it may be dry in the lowlands and it's not even raining amongst these trees, they're sucking moisture from cloud. Further up still, this is taken about a two-hour drive from that last piece of forest. This is in the Talamanca Mountains in Costa Rica. This is a temperate forest on the equator. This forest is incredible. It's got oak trees in there. It's got grassy, herbaceous ground flora. And you'd think, if you just blur your eyes and imagine for a second, you could be in England or Scotland or North America in the middle of June. But it's right bang on the equator, and it's like that all year long. This place is stuffed full of endemic species. I spent a few hours bird 
watching there, saw about 20 birds that are found nowhere else on Earth, apart from this ridge of mountain covered with these temperate tropical rainforests, if you can put it like that. So topography is having another big impact on the character of the forests. And then once you start looking um, at ground level, you see that the forest character is also being shaped by very rapid nutrient recycling. In a temperate forest, you'll find a lot of leaf litter on the ground. You find a lot of nutrients in the soil. In the tropical rainforest, the nutrients are nearly all in the living system because of recycling organisms like this millipede, one of the long longest uh, living, um, sorry, longest uh, occurring uh, land animals on planet Earth. These things came out of the oceans hundreds of millions of years ago. They still live in the tropical rainforests where they're adapted for this nutrient recycling role alongside many microorganisms, including bacteria, and also many thousands of species of fungi, which are also in the forest. And the fungi are also connecting the trees beneath the soil surface level. The mycorrhizae of the fungi not only are transferring nutrients between the breakdown products from those organisms like the millipedes and the tree roots, but also connecting the tree roots together. Recent research suggesting that the fungi, like a, a wood-wide web, some biologists call it, it's like a subsoil internet connecting trees so that they can communicate with each other, so that if one tree is attacked by pests via the fungal uh, messaging threads beneath the ground, the trees are able to produce toxins to fight off uh, pest attack before the pests actually arrive on that tree. A lot of underground cooperation going on, facilitated by the fungi. The forest is also connected via the relationships between flowering plants and pollinators. This is a long-term relationship that's been growing over about 100 million years and has now reached very high levels of sophistication and, of course, is best known in the relationship between flowering plants and insects, moving pollen between blossoms in order to be able to complete the life cycle of the tree or the shrub or the herb in the process feeding animals like this with nectar and pollen. The level of specialization in the tropical rainforest, however, when it comes to pollination, is extreme. Many species of insect are adapted to only pollinate one species of tree or flower, many orchids particularly famed for the level of specialization. That level of specialization is in turn a reflection of the trees and the plants trying to avoid pest attack and occurring at very low density in the forest. Very high diversity, very low density equals high level of specialization, meaning that we have many, many relationships still very poorly understood, binding the forest together through these ecological webs that we've hardly begun to even document. And of course, it's not only insects that are completing the life cycle of many uh, species of plant. Here's a bat, uh, many blossoms that are adapted to attract mammalian uh, pollinators in the form of bats, big white flowers that are visible at night, very strong scent, so the mammalian animals uh, can pick them up, and a very viscous uh, nectar, which lends itself to being lapped up by mammalian tongues. Many trees adapted to be pollinated by bats, and the relationship between the two obviously being mutually interdependent. Hummingbirds, of course, one group alongside sunbirds, honey creepers, lorikeets, birds that are adapted to feeding on flowers as well, and again, helping to, uh, to uh, weave the net still tighter in terms of the connections that exist in the forest that hold it together. 
And of course, all this pollination, there's only one reason why the plants are doing this, and that is to reproduce. They're producing seeds, and the seeds very often are encapsulated inside a fruit, and you've got a whole legion of organisms in the forest that are adapted for seed dispersal. Some of them, like that Colinarisari over there, can reach out to the tips of trees to pick up the fruit. That's why it's got that great big beak, a lion-tailed macaque clambering about, taking figs, that trogon moving between different bits of forest, dropping off seeds from the fruit that they've eaten. And again, another disease uh, fooling strategy going on here with the trees and the other plants trying to move their seeds as far as possible, trying to stay ahead of the microbes and the things that would cause disease on them. And by being more dispersed in the forest, they can avoid those kinds of pathogens and other pests catching up with them. Again, part of the same tapestry. And then, of course, not only do we have seed dispersers and pollinators in the forest, there's plenty of predators there, too. Some organisms make themselves highly toxic. They develop poisons in their skin to avoid being eaten by predators. Others try to avoid being seen in the first place. Look at that for a remarkable piece of evolution. That's a lichen catty did. That creature has evolved to look like that piece of lichen. Can you imagine the natural selection and the evolutionary forces that have permitted that to occur over millions of years? Or actually, even quicker than that. What about this animal? Can you see the giant potu sitting there? These adaptations to fool predators in the forest, enabling evolutionary success. And the more you look in the forest, the more you can find all of these different strategies for survival, which are dependent on other bits of the forest in order for them to work. And the tropical rainforests, with all of this, are, are incredibly diverse biologically, of course. And some groups are pretty much confined only to the tropical rainforests. Here's one group, the seven species of great ape. Uh, three orangutans, a new one recently described in Sumatra, two species of gorilla and two kinds of chimpanzee, all of them confined to the tropical rainforest. Those seven great apes, all of them are endangered or critically endangered, and the reason for that is the eighth great ape, namely us, Homo sapiens. So what's happening to these ecosystems? One pressure that's been very much in the environmental agenda for many years is logging. This is a picture I took in Sumatra three years ago of an illegal logging camp in an area of primary tropical rainforest. There were bits of sawmilling equipment there. There were planks left on the ground. We weren't sure why these people had come in, cut trees illegally, then left without taking the wood with them. But we talked to some other loggers um, the day before who told us a story of how six of their comrades had been eaten by a tiger. So perhaps that's one reason why these people have moved on, because this forest, despite the disturbance, has still got populations of Sumatran tiger living in it, but for how much longer will depend upon the authorities' ability to get a control of this kind of activity. In many parts of the tropics, there's rising populations of people uh, living around the edge of the forest, and of course that increases the pressure on slash-and-burn agriculture, people trying to get small bits of land to grow crops like this manioc you can see uh, in the Peruvian Amazon. Many people around the tropical forests are also desperately poor. They don't have electricity. They don't have natural gas. They're relying on collecting fuel wood to be able to cook their food. This is a picture uh, in Ivory Coast where you can see um, groups of young women and girls going out, collecting wood from the remaining areas of forests that still persist uh, in an area of intense demand for land. 
So these kinds of pressures, small-scale logging, uh, small-scale food production, gathering of fuel wood, these have been the historic pressures many of us have been trying to get to grips with for many years. More recently, this has been the kind of scene that has become more at the front line of the debate about the future of the forest. This is a soybean plantation in Mato Grosso in the southwestern Amazon basin. And over here you can see natural forest, and over here you can see a plantation uh, that is essentially growing uh, grain, uh, soya beans rather, for um, meat production. So this is going into intensive uh, poultry and pig production, some of it going into biofuels. And obviously the more the infrastructure opens up the interior of the forest, enabling the big uh, agribusiness interest to get access to areas that were previously inaccessible, this is a new soya bean export um, facility in the Port of Santa Rain, where the Rio Tapajos and the Amazon uh, meet each other. And this has made a huge difference to the demand for land in the region, encouraging more people to go there to open up the forest for soybean production because they can now get it quickly to market. And it's in big demand as the world's demand for chicken, pigs and intensive beef production goes up. Across the other side of the Pacific Ocean in the uh, Southeast Asian region, a big uh, impact on the forest has recently been seen as a result of demand for vegetable oil. This is um, the West African oil palm. That's its fruit. Uh, that particular species was exported to Southeast Asia um, some decades ago to be grown in massive plantations. That's one in Borneo, recently cleared land, which has been opened up uh, to provide uh, space to uh, grow much more of this material, which is used not only in vegetable oil for eating, but also is put into some biofuels, biodiesel. This is an area I photographed in Sumatra. You can see the recently cleared uh, area underneath the uh, oil palms that have been planted on top, the dead tree stems you can see there. This was an area of protected forest called Teso Nilo, one of the most uh, highly uh, prized areas for biodiversity remaining in central Sumatra, encroached illegally. This was illegally cleared. But you can see the level of organization there. That's not some uh, cowboy outfit. That goes on for many miles uh, out of the helicopter window, you can see. And apparently very difficult for the local authorities to get some uh, control over that. Here's a pulpwood plantation going in, an area of tropical forest being cleared in order to be able to use the trees to make uh, toilet paper, uh, cardboard, writing paper, and that's the pulp mill that this stuff was being fed into um, just a few miles from where that photograph was taken. You look at this industrialization of vast landscapes going on, and of course you can see an economic strategy that we recognize in the West. That's the city of Jakarta. The first time I went there in the early 1990s, it looked like a developing country and city. You go there today and it looks like this. Uh, the major banks, the major financial houses. If you walk around the corner here, you can go into a mall and go shopping for clothing. And that shopping mall, believe me, it makes Bond Street and parts of London look a bit shabby. Rampant economic growth built upon the liquidization of the country's natural resources, an economic strategy that appears rational at one level, but then in a few moments I'll explain an alternative view for you. But just to get a sense of what this looks like from a slightly different perspective, this is a photograph taken in the early 1980s of an infamous road called the BR364. You can see it up there, that little pale line. This was a road that was paved with funding by the World Bank in the early 1980s. 80s. 
By the late 1980s, the situation looked like that. And by the time you get to the early 2000s, it looked like that. So this is from space. You can see the scale of deforestation taking place. And of course, it's not just deforestation that's taking place. The forests are being degraded by activities uh, that include logging, for example. And not only are they being cleared and degraded, they're being highly fragmented. This piece of forest here, I visited a couple of years ago in Sumatra. It's about 500 metres long that way and about two kilometres deep that way. It's still a refuge for a couple of tigers that are going in there to catch pigs and deer. There's a few elephants still moving in and out of this landscape. But it's shattered. And if you look across the tropical rainforest biome as a whole, there are now believed to be something like 50 million individual blocks of forest left. So it's been fragmented from its original areas of, of contiguous forest into these little fragments, some of which, like that, are hugely important from a conservation point of view, but which now are a shadow of them former selves. Just to give you a global view of how this looks. The pale colours are the original tropical rainforest. The dark colours are what's left. You can see that much of what remains in the Asia-Pacific region is in the island of New Guinea. Hugely important from a conservation point of view that we put resources into there. But of course areas that remain in other places, the loser landscape in North Sumatra there, possibly one of the most important areas of tropical rainforest left on Earth. That's the last place in the world where you will find a tropical rainforest rhinoceros alongside tropical rainforest elephants, tigers and orangutans in the same place. The loser landscape is the last one. There are areas of tropical rainforests in Indochina where we have high levels of endemism, new animals and plants being discovered the whole time. It's vital we hang on to those. And this area in central Borneo, one of the last blocks left in the region, hugely important, not least for animals like orangutans. Across Africa, you can see large areas of, of contiguous forest still in the Congo Basin, but large areas already being driven into by new roads opening up new areas. The um, Upper Guinea forests over here, especially this area west of the Dahomey Gap, highly depleted. Very few areas of forest left in there. I'm going to talk about one in a bit, the Thai Forest National Park right there um, in Ivory Coast. But you can see um, that area becoming more uh, fragmented as time goes on. Much of the biologically important rainforests of Madagascar also gone too, at a frightening level of disappearance taking place there. In the Americas, you can see a high level of depletion of the tropical rainforest biome in Central America, largely gone in the Caribbean. There's a few national parks left in Cuba, uh, Jamaica and elsewhere. Down here, this is the front line of colonial exploitation 500 years ago. The Portuguese opened up this area of forest very quickly. Still some left. Hugely important biologically, very high levels of endemism here with animals and plants found nowhere else on Earth. And then, of course the remaining area of the Amazon, where most of what was originally there is still there and, of course, is playing a vital planetary role, not just of interest to countries that happen to be there, Colombia, Ecuador, Brazil, Venezuela. This is important to the whole world, and indeed it all is. But why is that? And indeed, why should we worry? Well, one thing we should worry about is the mass extinction of animals and plants that's now gathering pace. We hear a lot about climate change, uh, but many of us in the environmental community would say we should be worried more about this loss of natural diversity. 
I show you a picture here of a bird from a former life of mine when I worked at BirdLife International trying to stop the extinction of rare parrots. That's one we missed the boat on. Actually, we missed the boat on that a long time ago. This is the Jamaican red macaw. It was barely described before that was wiped out shortly after the appearance of, um, uh, of people, European people, in the Caribbean. And alongside many other animals, it went quite quickly. And this process continues today. And that biodiversity, there's something like 8 to 10 million species on Earth today. About half of it is in the tropical rainforest. And it's hemorrhaging very quickly. The red macaw might be a thing of beauty we mourn the loss of. Many things we know actually have got very practical values for humankind. That's a red jungle fowl. Uh, that is the ancestor of the domestic chicken. Think about where brands like Nando's and Kentucky Fried Chicken would be had this creature never evolved in the tropical rainforest. And obviously a hugely important source of food. It's a staple alongside potatoes, avocados, uh, rice, maize. Many of the crops that we rely on for global food security came from tropical rainforests. That's cocoa. And that particular plant, of course, is the bedrock, the foundation for the profits of companies like Nestle, Mars, Mondelez, multi-billion pound companies that wouldn't exist had it not been for Olmec Indians about 3,000 years ago, realizing you could make a very tasty drink from this particular plant. And when it comes to tasty drinks, think about the profits of Starbucks, Cafe Nero, Costa and others who relied on indigenous people living in moist forests in East Africa discovering coffee some centuries past. And that, again, being turned into a multi-billion dollar industry. Corn chips, tacos, a teosinte grass species domesticated by Central American Indians some thousands of years ago. All of these things, you look at them and you think, well, surely we've already got those. We don't need to worry about the tropical forests anymore. Well, bear in mind that if we are going to navigate novel diseases and the impacts of climate change, the most, the most important resource that we have is the wild relatives of these species that we now rely on so uh, greatly for our global food security. You hear a lot about genetic engineering and genes being used to enhance agriculture. Actually, the bit we hardly ever hear about is the wild relatives of these many species, which we will rely upon and indeed do rely upon now to enrich the gene pool of the plants that we've domesticated. It's not only about food that our day-to-day -day needs are being met through the tropical rainforests. That's a red-eyed tree frog, uh, rather a beautiful creature that we used at Friends of the Earth as an emblem for our campaign for many years. It's very beautiful, but also it happens to have in its skin a compound that stops the reproduction of the virus that causes AIDS in humans. Quite an important thing to have discovered. The more we look, the more we find painkillers, anti-cancer treatments, heart treatments. It's all out there in the tropical forest, so long as the tropical forest continues to exist, and we can draw upon this biological treasure house to be able to meet the novel demands of our modern age. And it's not only for food and medicine that the demands of our age uh, requires innovation. This particular butterfly might well be helping us to combat climate change. I saw these in a tropical uh, cloud forest in Colombia. And as you can see, the leaf on the other side of the butterfly, um, it's transparent. It's called a glass wing. And the reason for that, if 
if it sits still and the bird happens to be hopping around looking for something to eat, it looks straight through it. The bird doesn't register that there's an insect there. And so this has got real survival value. But also, uh, biologists looking at this particular butterfly and why it's so hard to see discovered that there's a nanoscale structure on the surface of that transparent wing that doesn't reflect light. It lets the light go straight through it. And can you imagine what people have been doing with that? Well, yes, they've been designing new coatings for solar panels, making them more efficient through having a low reflectivity surface on top of the uh, solar collecting device. This stuff is all out there. Design challenges, engineering challenges, environmental challenges. The chances are, for many of them, natural selection has already found a solution, so long as the forest is still there for us to look for it. And when it comes to human, uh, human uh, needs, of course, one I've already mentioned is the water supply. Many tropical countries are getting water to irrigate crops and public water supply from the forests. The forests are replenishing the moisture into the atmosphere. They're catching it. They're recycling it back into rivers. And, of course, this is hugely important for the municipal uh, uh, supply, but also for agriculture. And indeed, as I discovered in West Africa, this is a picture I took in Ivory Coast, uh, for, for energy security. This is a hydroelectric dam being built in the centre of the country in a time when they are suffering uh, unprecedented droughts. And the reason for the unprecedented drought is deforestation. So if we want to have water in these countries, and indeed further afield, as I'll explain in a second, then keeping the forest intact is a really vital part of the equation for food and, indeed, energy security. 200 megawatts of power will come out of that dam if the river keeps flowing. And that's a big if, if you look at the deforestation taking place in that part of the world. I mentioned the water travelling long distances. This is a picture taken in South Dakota in the United States. Would you believe there's modelling now showing that water security as far afield as that from the Amazon is being affected by deforestation in the Amazon? 2014, Brazil had a punishing drought. It hit the power supply. It hit the economy. They had an 8% drop in GDP as a result of electricity no longer being reliable and also the impact on crops. The reason for that, many biologists said at least, and climatologists, was deforestation in the Amazon. This is a global breadbasket. It is vital for global food security, and it might well be affected by deforestation in the Amazon, interrupting that conveyor belt of moisture being pumped into the atmosphere by the trees day in, day out. That part of the world, and indeed everywhere else, might also be hit by the effects of carbon pollution getting into the atmosphere. These tropical rainforest trees growing in the lowlands, that's in India, that one's in, in Africa, about 4% of the trees growing in a tropical rainforest have generally got about 80% of the carbon in them. So these are big carbon stores and individual organisms standing right there. Of course, these are the ones that the loggers go after for the big planks, the big beams, the high-value timbers, and in the process putting a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. If total deforestation follows, another big pulse of CO2. But actually, one of the things we don't hear much about is the loss of soil carbon. I took this picture in Indonesia three years ago. Some of you may remember the headlines of these massive forest fires going through Borneo and Sumatra. This was one of them. I walked in here a couple of hours after the fire had gone through. You can see a firefighter still trying to put it out. But the ground level, a few hours before this photograph was taken, was there. And you can see about three metres of peat that was basically a biological, organic uh, sink of carbon 
it was basically incinerated in a very short time and turned into carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So a biological store of carbon has been turned into atmospheric CO2, changing the global climate, and in this case also affecting the health of millions of people as that pollution is blowing across to Kuala Lumpur and Singapore and elsewhere. This is um, uh, 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 an incredibly high level of CO2 being released from these kinds of fires. And indeed, in 2015, this is just in the weeks before the Paris summit on climate change, some scientists estimated that the CO2 per day coming out of these peatland fires in Indonesia was bigger than the entire emissions of the United States, all of its planes, its houses, its power stations and factories coming from this biological store of carbon. If you want to fight climate change, stop deforestation, start to put the forest back, and in particular, protect these forests that are on top of peat. That's an overriding priority. And if we want to cope with the effects of climate change, we might want to keep the forests intact as well. This is a picture of Hurricane Matthew that slammed into Haiti, one of the poorest countries in the world. In October 2016, it killed about 1,000 people. That's tragic, but it was a tragedy that probably could have been made less severe had that country's tropical rainforest still existed on the hillsides. Having removed 98% of the tree cover, when that rain fell, several feet of rain over a few hours, it took the soil off the hillsides into a raging torrent of rock and material that basically wiped out entire communities. So as we deforest, we're putting carbon into the atmosphere and at the same time making ourselves more naked in the face of global warming. And despite all of the reasons now we have to know that we need to rely on the forest for food security, water security, energy security, for biological innovation long into the future, for a carbon store to protect uh, places from extreme weather. All of those reasons, they've got multi-trillion price tags on them, and yet the politics finds it hard to catch up. This is a picture in Bali in 2007. The Indonesian president, the secretary general of the United Nations, and this gentleman, Ivo de Boer, the secretary general of the Climate Change Treaty. You can see his body language says it all. But is it really so hopeless? Can nothing be done? Well, actually, over my career, a great deal has been done. And one of the ways in which we've managed to make some progress has been by targeting some of the market opportunities, the sources of demand that can then be played back into decisions on the ground. This is a picture of my colleagues at Friends of the Earth in the early 1990s outside Harrods in London, targeting the flow of mahogany. Uh, this was coming from indigenous reserves. We were given information by uh, various groups in Brazil, showing us the connections between illegal logging and the plight of the indigenous people. And we did a campaign basically to point out the human impacts as well as the environmental ones in a campaign called Mahogany is Murder. And over a very short time, we managed to reduce the mahogany imports into the UK by about 80% in just a few years. And that had really quite a major um, effect on the Brazilian government, which didn't did then begin to invest in protecting indigenous reserves and clamping down on illegal logging. And some of what you saw follow over the years subsequently, especially with the Greenpeace campaign on soy kicking in uh, about a decade later, you see the deforestation rate in the Amazon going down very substantially. We're always working on political shifting sands in terms of how these things pan out, but this stuff does work. It did work, and it made a difference. And we've also seen examples of 
of how uh, campaigning around brands can really shift some of the deep drivers of deforestation in surprising ways. This is um, the uh, work of Asia Pulp and Paper, a major Indonesian paper company, clearing tropical rainforests to open up areas of plantation uh, to be supplying the world with its insatiable demand for tissue and card and everything else. Greenpeace went after this company by targeting all of the brands who were buying Asia Pulp and Paper's fibre to put into their products, including Barbie packaging. Do you remember... Uh, Toy Story 3 with Ken and Barbie. Has anyone ever seen that film? Yeah, well, um, Greenpeace uh, did this rather splendid stunt. Barbie, it's over. I don't date girls that are into deforestation. Now, if you're the chief executive of Mattel and Greenpeace run that banner down the front of your office in Los Angeles and they tell you you've got a choice, you can carry on buying paper from Asia Pulp and Paper and putting it into the Barbie packaging and we'll keep on doing things like this. Imagine what the little boys and girls will think of you if we do that. Or you can switch your paper supplier. What did Mattel do? They switched their paper supplier. And so did Xerox and so did Tesco's and so did Walmart and so did a hundred other companies to the point where Asia Pulp and Paper in 2013 unveiled a new policy, their forest conservation policy, that said they weren't going to cut any more natural forest. They subsequently said they were going to restore one million hectares that had previously been covered with natural tropical rainforest. An incredible turnaround shifted by public opinion, keying into a market driver in a way where the company really couldn't resist, and they didn't. It was an unconditional surrender. It was really quite an interesting thing to see. And of course, as we've been going along, it's been not only a question of targeting individual companies and pointing out the um, ill deeds of those trading in mahogany or in uh, tropical rainforest wood that's being turned into paper. Activists have targeted the bigger economic system as well, including the World Trade Organization. And there's a picture of me moments before my arrest in Davos in 2001. Um, dressed up as a world-eating fat cat was the idea of the stunt. Uh, the name of the body there is World Economic Forum. We took their logo and had World Eating Fat Cat as our logo and went and distributed leaflets there and we were arrested for our trouble. But the reason I included that in the book um, is just because of the incredible change that's taken place over a short time. So some of these campaigns um, on mahogany, on the Asia Pulp and Paper brand, some of the things around the WTO and the World Economic Forum, they now look like ancient history because today there's a very different dialogue going on amongst many companies. And I saw some of that in West Africa when I went to ground level to go and see the supply of cocoa feeding the world's largest chocolate company, Mondelez. And this chap here is uh, working for an NGO um, trying to increase smallholder yields in an area of very high poverty where people can barely make a living. And Mondelez are investing in people having a sustainable livelihood in that part of the world, not because they're being targeted by campaigners telling them it's wrong to deforest. It's because they've put two and two together. The world's largest chocolate company has realised that it is nowhere without continuing rain in the places where the cocoa is being grown. In this part of the world, the rains are faltering. 
They had the longest drought they've ever recorded uh, just before I went down there to interview the people uh, in the story. And they uh, were telling me that the reason for the long droughts is deforestation. The chocolate companies got that too, and that's why they're investing not only in helping the farmers to stabilise their fields so that they don't have to go into the forest to open up more land, but also to be investing in forest restoration in partnership with the government. There's a business case. Water and chocolate are inextricably related, and finally some pennies are beginning to drop. When I went to that demonstration in Davos 17 years ago, this was not the case. The world is beginning to catch up. So we can see that the empowerment of smallholders, market action, have been two very powerful drivers that are still working for us. There's actually another one which I think is even more important, and that has been the voice of local people. This is a tribe called the Penan. Uh, in, in the 80s and 90s, this tribe were literally at the front line of resistance to be able to hang on to their homelands. This particular group, um, they survived, but they largely lost their struggle in the face of the overwhelming pressure of the oil palm and logging industries. But actually, what's been a happier story is what's happened in many parts of Latin America. This is a group called the Ashaninka people. I went to visit them for research for the book and discovered um, more of their long story in terms of trying to get control of their land. Um, really, since the time of, of the conquistadors, they've been in a struggle with outsiders and only 10 years ago managed to get legal title to a large area of the uh, Peruvian Amazon rainforest, which is now the Ashaninka Indigenous Reserve. It covers millions of hectares. It is incredible. I went up one river and they were pointing to a ridge and telling me that over that ridge there were people who were uncontacted. Still tribes up there who've never had contact with the outside world. These people are in their buffer zone. And if you carry on, you can go for hundreds of miles and you cross the Brazilian border. And across the Brazilian border, there's other tribes who've got access uh, to legal title on their land as well. This is really a game-changing situation. And in Colombia, Brazil and Peru, you can see those areas. If you look at satellite maps of the deforestation, it stops in certain places. And if you map the indigenous reserves onto those places, you can see that this is the difference that's being made. Eyes in the forest. The people looking after their ancestral lands, they're going to be a much more motivated and a much more effective uh, police force from the forest than any outside interest. They're also a force for scientific inquiry. This fellow's called Jaime Penner. I was really impressed by this man. He was living uh, in a hut at the uh, centre of a massive area of tropical rainforest. Took four days to get in there. He had a laptop powered by a solar panel. He had a video camera. Uh, he had a series of camera traps that he put into the forest. And he showed me the most incredible footage of spectacled bears, of ocelots, of uh, tapirs, a wide range of rainforest animals. He was documenting that stuff. He was sharing it with the conservationists. Most importantly, he said from his point of view, was that he was showing the children in the village these pictures. They're being distracted more by outside influences as time goes on. But he says we can live in the forest forever so long as we value it correctly. And that's what he's trying to do by gathering this information. So the indigenous people empowered 
and given the means to protect their land, will be the most effective way forward. But of course, we've got traditional protected areas that are holding the line as well. This is the Thai Forest National Park in Ivory Coast. In there are tool-using chimpanzees, an animal called a zebra diker. It's a rainforest antelope. It's very rare. Uh, there are uh, uh, an anim animals called white-necked picothartes, a very rare kind of bird. This bit of forest is hugely important, possibly one of the most important national parks in Africa and what I was encouraged to see there not only is the line being held with very small resources a forestry department massively overworked but actually the local people now are becoming more tuned in to this being part of their struggle too and the reason for that is because they now know that the forest is watering their crops so incredible synergies beginning to appear in different parts of the world. Another synergy you can see in some places is between ecotourism and forest conservation. A couple of examples there. One is the Peria Tiger Reserve in India, um, which is basically run by the indigenous people. They're hired as the park guards. They have rights of access to the forest. They have every good reason for keeping the tigers there healthy because people come from Holland, from Denmark, from North America, and they spend a lot of money going to look at that place. This is a place called Selva Bananito in Costa Rica. Up there, you can see a transboundary national park. That park covers tens of thousands of square kilometers of tropical rainforest going across the border into Panama. It's an incredible place, just the most astonishing biodiversity in there. That place is being made safer by this buffer zone being replanted around the edge of the forest, native forest trees being nurtured in the nursery, being planted there, and the point of this place is ecotourism. German uh, students I met there gone on their gap year to plant trees. They're going to come away from there highly motivated, and I'm sure others will go there because of the incredible biological wealth that's um, so easily uh, to see. This is another level of the action alongside the indigenous control, the more enlightened use of the forest for practical reasons, is this level of international cooperation that's now occurring between countries. That's the Prince of Wales, one of the most uh, famous rainforest ambassadors with President Santos of Colombia. A few years ago, just days before an agreement was concluded between Colombia and the United Kingdom using some of our international uh, climate change budget to protect an area of tropical rainforest here called Chiribiquet. About one million hectares already protected, another million hectares about to be protected as a result of cooperation fostered between world leaders. So a huge level of uh, opportunity remains there in terms of countries' ability to speak to one another in constructive ways about finding solutions and including by providing resources. And you might be thinking, well, what about all the corruption? There's all these companies, they're so two-faced, you can't believe a word they say. Well, yes, there is an element of that, um, but now it's very hard to hide. This is a, a new tool called Global Forest Watch. If any of you have a computer and look at the internet, go on there and have a look. If you think you can deforest anywhere on planet Earth without anybody knowing, those days are gone. Greenpeace are already using this to launch campaigns against co cocoa companies in Peru, for example, who say they've got one policy, they're doing another. It takes a very short time to spot the difference. Really powerful stuff. And of course, as we've gone along, we've had more confidence emerging in the international machinery as well. I showed you that picture of Ivo de Boer, his uh, body language shattered, demoralized in 2007. That's the equivalent picture at the end of the Climate Change Summit in 2015, where we had a new regime for stopping deforestation built into the international machinery. And you can see there the jubilation, President Hollande, Ban Ki-moon, uh, 
Lawrence Fabius and uh, Christiana Figueres there, um, basically signalling a different reality. So we are on the cusp of big change, I would say. We know about market pressure. We know about the practical case. We know about the political case. We know how to do the international diplomacy. And we've got more information than ever before about the value of these places. Half is gone. Half is left. We can hang on to the half that's left, and we can put back a lot of what's gone if we wanted to. Thank you very much. Tony, that was absolutely fantastic. I feel I've been <coughs> belaboured about the head with statistics. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Not at all. It's been very, very enlightening. It's extraordinary. <laughs> so while you recover your breath, yes. it's unbelievable. So well done. Now, I think it's time anyway. Let's get straight on with some questions from the audience. So we have the lights up and the microphone at the ready. So who wants to be the first? There's a hand up there. Perhaps we could try this gentleman first. Like all of us, I think. Um, am I on? Yes. Yep. I enjoyed that talk enormously. Thank you. One thing that is never mentioned on these talks is world population. Yes. When are we going to start doing something about that? Um, That's what drives all of this. Yes. Things are being done about that, but maybe not what you're thinking. So having thought about that a lot over the years, I basically came to the conclusion, maybe think of a fifth one if you can. We've got four options on slowing down the human population growth rate. There's the Chinese option where you make a law and you say you can have one child. Um, you can do sterilisation and basically make people infertile. India tried that in the 1970s. You can distribute access to reproductive health care. Bangladesh, most African countries, this country, it's a basic public health um, good in most, most civilised parts of the world. You can do that. The fourth thing you can do, the fourth thing you can do, which hardly gets talked about, is to provide decent education, especially for young women, which is the most effective and probably the uh, most socially beneficial thing you can do. Um, I, I spent some time with um, colleagues at the World Bank a few years ago, and we had a, had a, a four-day seminar looking at all these issues about sustainability and what an international development body could do. And, you know, we had a long discussion about, you know, if the World Bank had to spend its money on one thing, what would that one thing be? And it was that, uh, education for young people in the developing countries. So that's my population policy. I, I think probably it's got the benefit of might actually work, and in a democracy, you know, I, I think any country where people vote for their leaders, you're not going to get them voting for sterilisation or, or enforced um, family size limits, unfortunately. Well, I say unfortunately. They just won't. So, um, you know, th so there's that. The other thing to bear in mind about population as well um, is the extent to which, you know, I think in the West we tend to think about it as developing countries' large family size. Actually, a very big component of population increase in the modern world is the fact that we're living to a great age. So whereas we used to die in our 60s, we're now more dying in our 80s and 90s, which is a wonderful thing, of course. Um, but the question then becomes one of how do we have sustainable lives, long ones, uh, rather than simply being about the numbers of people. And so that consumption dimension, I think, is, is a crucial bit of the equation, especially when you see that the very high-consuming people are also the ones who are living a long time. And so those are the ones, you know, who are using up more natural resources and putting more carbon into the atmosphere. So there we are. I've got two population policies now, actually. So one is consumption and just like, you know, let, let's just all try and walk lightly on the earth. And the other one is education. 
Thank you. No, I did Somebody have hands up here, so let's try a start with this hand up there, and we'll move on. Hi, thank you for that. Uh, it's really interesting. Um, do you <coughs> believe that things that we do on an individual level, such as um, you know, using less paper, eating less meat, are as important as the political movements you're talking about? Yes, I do. I do, and I tell you why. Um, so, well, there's the practical um, effect straight away. So, if we're all eating less meat, then there's less meat. You know, in the end, it's going to send a market signal and people will start doing things differently. I think one of the bits of this whole environmental equation that we've massively underestimated is the culture piece and the extent to which, you know, it's embedded in, you know, how we live and how we think. Because in the end, politics and what big companies doing, those are both reflections of how society is. And if the politicians and the companies think that we're interested in living a greener life, it will follow. And so I, I think that is the thing which... which um, you know, does begin to change things. I, I remember um, when I joined Friends of the Earth in, the, in 1990 and uh, I, I went to do the Tropical Rainforest campaign and my colleagues there were working on waste and recycling. And would you believe, I mean, it's not so long ago, but there was no recycling. We, you know, we had local groups who went and collected piles of paper and they kept it and it kind of got wet and then now and again they'd sell it for a few quid. But they had enormous faith that simply by doing that, they would show something that other people would think, actually, that's not a bad idea. And over time, the argument would build, and that's exactly what happened. And so there's probably a vanguard of, you know, less meat-eating people, you know, who are flying less. And, you know, who knows what the world would be like in 20 years, but it might well be the fact that that will be normal. And the reason it was made normal is because people started doing it. So I think it's hugely important. Let's move into the central area. A couple of hand up here. Hi. Um, thank you, Tony. That was incredible. Um, what I'd like to ask is, is something about the way in which we measure ourselves in society. A lot of it is economically driven. Yes. It's all about GDP. Yeah, it's all about absolutely. progress. It's all about yeah. jobs, new industry. I think people are getting sort of sucked into that to a certain extent. What about countering that with other measures which are equally important to conservationists like us? Yes, indeed. So, so the, the, I think embedded in all of that, that's why I showed that picture of Jakarta. I mean, it's basically an economic argument that we're in, in, in terms of this whole environmental sustainability piece. It's how we, the question is how are we going to create an economic system that is embedded inside the ecological system and is nurturing and rebuilding the ecosystem. And at the moment, we've got one cannibalizing the other. And, you know, we count that as growth, but in fact it's destroying its own basis. It's digging up its own foundations. It is literally insane. I mean, you, would, you, you kind of wonder how we finished up with a system whereby we're measuring destruction as success, and that's what it is. Greenhouse gases, resource depletion, soil damage, water consumption, everything else. So finding a different kind of um, economic idea, I think, is the big job for the 21st century for the environmentalists. In my new role at WWF, we're putting quite a lot of time into that now, uh, thinking through how we can start to make a case to economic decision makers, to financial institutions, to get the economy reoriented so that it actually starts to rebuild the natural uh, wealth that we rely upon. And so that can be done. It's all about ideas and where the ideas get traction and where they start to, to um, find favour. I've written quite a lot about that stuff. Um, uh, there's some controversial ideas in there. So one of them is this idea of natural capital. Some people really hate that, including amongst the environmentalists. 
call it something different. I don't know, call it natural wealth. Um, but the, the idea that actually the economic system is being sustained by the environmental system, I mean, it's a simple thing to say, but that is the thing that we need to get into, into the popular consciousness and that natural capital idea. That's one way it works for the economists. There's other ways of doing it. Actually, George Monbiot and his, some of his rewilding, you can see similar ideas in there. He's coming at it through a different phrase and a different lens. But I think, you know, the world is ready for this. I think so many people now, talking of individuals, you know, most people, I think, can see that the economic system is, is bonkers. What are we growing? Growing misery, drug use, global warming, soil destruction... We don't want to grow any of those, do we, really? Well, that's what the GDP figures, though, are telling us very often. And I think the new economic idea it is about measurement. And what, we, what we probably want to measure longevity, happiness, how secure people feel, the quality of their relationships, levels of education, the impact on the environment that's being caused. Imagine if we started measuring all of that and made that the economy. Just think what the policy mix would be. It would be radically different. Good. I have some questions from over here. Yes, a hand up here. To your you mentioned uh, Indonesia, Jakarta, and Borneo, and so on. Uh, do you see a relationship there between uh, deforestation and, and the plastic ocean? The plastic in the ocean, a, a relationship. Um, I think probably the relationship is, is in the, um, you know, the quite widespread disregard for, for, for the quality of the environment, whether it's pollution in the sea or whether there's trees standing on the land. And um, I, I think beyond that, I, I don't know if there's anything that unites those things at, at, at a deeper level. Um, but I, I would think, you know, and again, it goes back to the culture piece and the extent to which societies are tuned in to some of the questions I, I talked about today, because that then does translate into political choices and what companies do. And I have to say, I have been in meetings in Indonesia where I felt as though, you know, the people I'm talking to who've got some control over the outcomes for the forest, they really don't know what I'm talking about. Why, why do you want to protect these animals? You know, it, it's a kind of cultural kind of, you know, we're talking different values base, that there is no value seen in the intact forest, only the money that can be extracted from its liquidation. And that's quite a deep thing to be able to, to grapple with. Where does that take you? Well, I think that can take you into the economic arguments, because most countries get that. And actually, the West African cocoa story, I think, is a good example of that, where the government there, you know, they're a bit kind of like, you know, why are you worried about elephants and chimpanzees? But when you talk about water security and therefore rural employment and therefore the economy, then they get that and they can see, actually, okay, we'll put some forests back now. We've seen the water thing. Happens to be the same forest with the elephants and the chimpanzees in it, which is very good from a conservation perspective. And I think quite a lot of what we need to do is to be finding those arguments that can get past the impasse, if you will, to be um, having a discussion with people in a language that they understand. And, you know, jobs, rural economy, food security, exports, they get that. They don't necessarily get the specialness of the zebra diker. I get it. Um, but um, a lot of people don't. So I think a lot of this environmental story increasingly is about narratives, I think, and the story we try to give to different people. So a lot of time increasingly goes into thinking that through. You know, what's the message that, that people are going to respond to? And, you know, so, yeah. So but, but I'm, I'm immensely optimistic, though, because people will respond to something. Everybody will respond to something. Yes, I think I come away very much heartened, and I'm sure I speak for all of us, uh, in the tone of what you're saying, in the, the general you. positive attitude. So Thank you. Good on you.
Thank you. Anyway, I have to. Uh, We're done. It all looks quarter past three. Exactly. We we'll have to bring down <laughs> the curtain. But Tony will be signing copies of his books in the main bookshop, which is out that door, and on the third or fourth on your right. So come and have ask some more questions. You don't object to more questions? No, certainly not. No, 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 thank no. you. No. As thank I said you, earlier on, it's been a fantastic well, thank session. Thank you. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Tony Gilbert. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.